weeks, and some people left. Many people stayed on, but some people left, and, and new people came in. So I told Maddie that uh, I spent the first six weeks when that retreat was going on uh, in New York City teaching, and then I started teaching people on intensive retreat. And you're the first people I've, I've taught or you know, talked with in six weeks who actually read the newspapers. <laughs> you know, I know what's going on in the world. So it's a very interesting juxtaposition of, of the inner life and, and the outer world. Why don't we start by sitting for just a few minutes together. I know some of you have just sat, but nonetheless. <coughs> I usually like to begin speaking by just having a short sitting like that because of the feeling of collectedness that happens. You know, when I came here, we couldn't find a parking space. And we drove around and around and around. And there's all that energy I'm bringing with me and not having been here. I came here once when it was under construction, when the renovations were happening, but I haven't actually been here when it was fully constructed. So I have all that energy happening. And uh, I'm sure all of you have your own energy happening. And this of course, is one of the cardinal principles of meditation practice. What happens when we actually gather all that energy, when we reclaim it? The energy which could be available to us but is normally dispersed and scattered and all over the place. What happens when we bring it together, we bring ourselves together? Even just the, the movement of my hands in that example, it's the movement of integration, of wholeness, rather than being fragmented and split apart. I first began to practice meditation in 1971 in India. I'd been a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo and took an Asian philosophy course in my sophomore year, which had a, it was really a course on Buddhism. And from the beginning, I was mesmerized by, by the topic, the fact that somebody like the Buddha, was openly acknowledging the existence of suffering, for one thing. There was nothing hidden. There was nothing, nothing denied. <coughs> and that there was a cause of suffering. There was an end of suffering, which was a remarkable concept. And that there was a path to the end of suffering, a path that was not just available to a certain select group of people, but a path that could be available to anyone to come to the end of suffering. It was extraordinary for me. Also at that university, there was a program where you could apply to go to another culture for a year, usually to another country, and study that culture. And the theory being that you would come back for your final year and do a kind of course cultural study. And my joke is usually it being Buffalo, New York, many people went and not that many people came back, which was true. So I put those things together, the availability or the possibility of this program and my deep interest in Buddhism, which soon took the direction of actually wanting to learn how to meditate. I was very confused, very, very unhappy. And somehow there was something within me that, that just knew instinctively that what I really needed to do was to learn how to meditate and that somehow that would, that would radically affect my own peace of mind. And now, of course, I look back and I think, well, isn't that funny, you know? How did I know? Which is probably how I came to try to write a book on faith, which was also a journey. And I took that motivation, that deep desire to learn how to meditate and filled out an application form to this program. It said I wanted to go to India to study Buddhist meditation. And amazingly enough, it got accepted. So off I went to practice. Actually, just a few days before I was leaving Buffalo, the Tibetan Lama Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche came to a different university to give a talk. And I think he was the first real live Buddhist I'd ever seen, you know, so I looked at him really carefully and he, he was very compelling for me. There was something about him that was very, very quiet. 
it wasn't the quiet of suppression or, or restraint, like he was holding something down, you know, and covering it over with a layer of, of silence. It felt like deep within him there was some kind of silence. And I knew that if that place existed within me, I'd never been there. <laughs> he asked for written questions at the end of his talk, and I wrote out the question, well, I'm about to leave for India in a few days to study Buddhist meditation. Can you suggest where I might go? So, of course, it happened to be one of the questions he picked out of the pile. He read it out loud. He was silent for a moment, and then he said, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that was it. No, no map, no guidebook, no address, no sort of monastery key. That was it. You perhaps just follow best follow the pretense of accident. So I went off and went overland, got to India, and I went to Dharamsala right away because I knew the Dalai Lama lived there and, and was pretty confident I could find a teacher. And sure enough, there was a teacher there, a very highly respected teacher, but things just didn't work. I'd go one day for the meditation class and he was sick, so it had been canceled. And I trudged down the mountain. I'd go another time for the meditation class, and he was feeling fine, but the translator wasn't there. He just disappeared, you know. So I trudged back down the mountain. And this went on repeatedly, and I really didn't know what, what was going to happen for me. Then I actually just overheard a conversation at lunch one day in a restaurant between these two Westerners where this woman was saying, well, you know, there's going to be this really giant yoga conference happening in New Delhi and all of these very great and esteemed and magnificent swamis and teachers and gurus are going to gather there for this conference. So I thought, oh, well, you know, that must be my next step. That must be where I need to go because that's where I'll find a teacher and finally learn how to meditate. So I went down from Dharamsala um, to New Delhi walked into the conference only to be greeted by the sight of all of these swamis and yogis like shoving and pushing each other to grab the mic to be the first one to speak. So <laughs> that was absolutely demoralizing. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, nothing is going to happen here. But I didn't know where to go. So I just kept going to programs at the conference. And uh, one program... Uh, was actually a talk being given by Dan Goleman, who at the time was a, a graduate student in psychology. And he mentioned at the end of the talk that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, which is where the Buddha became enlightened. And he was going to enter an intensive 10-day retreat when he got there. He also said, in a casual way, that one of the people attending the retreat was going to be Ramdas. Ramdas was a name familiar to me because he had come to Buffalo once and given a lecture. And he was far out in spiritual and all of that. So I thought, okay, great. I'll go to Bodh Gaya and I'll learn how to meditate, which I did. I went off my train to Bodh Gaya and waited a few days for the retreat to begin and then entered the gates of this intensive 10-day retreat, which was absolutely mind-blowing. I hadn't meditated for even one moment when I sat down to... <laughs> Do the, do the practice for 10 days in uh, great intensity. And I hadn't really known myself very well. I was 18 years old, for one thing, you know, and so everything was shocking. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, I can't believe I think that, you know. And everything was, was kind of a, a nasty revelation. And it was very, very, very difficult for me to practice between the physical pain and sleepiness and the restlessness and the agitation and, and uh, everything I was discovering about myself. But there was something that felt absolutely correct. I felt without any doubt whatsoever that this is where I belonged. This is what I needed to do. Yet I was a little bit concerned about the quality of the meditation instruction that I was being given because on my journey, on my odyssey, I also had 
along with this heartfelt wish to learn how to meditate, I had a lot of concepts about the kind of fantastic, extraordinary, supernatural, esoteric, amazing meditation technique that I would be given that would just dispel all of my suffering and, and make me understand the, the nature of things. And much to my chagrin, the very first instruction I got in this retreat was, sit down and feel your breath. And I thought, that's ludicrous, you know. I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath, you know. Why did I come all the way to India to feel my breath? But <laughs> And then I thought, well, you know, I'm such a beginner. You know, here I am, I've never practiced at all, and he's got to say something, you know. So this must be what he says publicly, you know, for all the <laughs> beginners, and yet... What's going to happen is that I'll practice and I'll practice and I'll practice and I'll have some kind of amazing breakthrough experience which will be obvious to everybody, including him, maybe especially him, the teacher, this man named Goenka, and he will then take me aside into this special room and say to me, well, now I'm going to give you the real meditation instruction. And I waited and waited and waited and waited and practiced and it's been more than 30 years now. <laughs> and when I go to practice in that particular lineage, in that school, it's the same instruction. Now, I've changed completely and continue to change, but the instruction has remained that very simple, very direct suggestion. Because there's a lot in that, that one instruction. Once I told this story somewhere in California and someone in the group said, well, maybe everybody else you started with got to go into that special room, you know, and they got the really amazing instruction. You're the only one, you know, who's like left back in the class and you're still being told to feel your breath. But there's a lot in that one instruction. One of the things I've come to cherish about meditation practice is that the big lessons happen in very small packages. It's not didactic, it's not intellectual, often it's not even articulated, but something shifts inside us as we, as we learn to relate in an entirely different way to our experience. Sitting down and feeling your breath is not that easy. For one thing I discovered, it was quite hard for me to feel just one breath. Because as soon as this breath was happening, I'd be leaning forward into the next getting ready. You know, I can't miss it. So rather than having a complete and wholehearted experience of what was happening right now, I would be moving into the future all the time. Just as our bodies would hurt, would ache from leaning forward all of the time, so do our minds, our hearts. It was quite a challenge for me and also very important to learn just to settle back and to be with the breath that actually was happening. It's not so easy to be with the breath because it's funny. The, uh, in the tradition, in the text, one of the reasons they say that breath is chosen as an object often for meditation is that it's basically neutral. It's a place where the mind can rest which is not intensely challenging. So many other things happen in the course of meditation which are challenging, both in their uh, intensity of pain or in their intensity of pleasure. That we need kind of this resting place, this home base, which is, which is basically neutral. But isn't it the case that even with this experience, which is supposed to be neutral, we find ways to judge it? I'm not breathing deeply enough. I'm not breathing shallowly enough. It's too soft, it's too harsh, it's too loud, it's too quiet. So there's another reason why just sitting down and feeling the breath is not so easy. And then maybe the primary reason, which is, I think, one of those great places where a tremendous teaching is hidden in a very simple action what do we do when we find our attention has wandered? And we just sat together for a few moments, a few minutes really, 
Some of you sat for, what, half an hour before? 45 minutes. Okay, well, 45 minutes is even better. You know, what happened in the course of 45 minutes? Probably a lot. A lot could happen in those three or four minutes. In fact, it takes a good degree of mindfulness to know what happens. One of my teachers, this Burmese teacher, Sayadu Pandita, had this kind of trick question he asked people. He says, about how many breaths can you be with before your attention wanders? And the reason it's a trick question is because they believe if you're really mindful, you will notice how much your attention wanders. Whereas if you say, oh, I can be with the breath for 45 minutes and my attention never wanders, they think you are so lost in space, you know, that you don't have a clue what's going on. Sometimes I've been sitting in the back of the room when he's asked someone that question, and they'll say, oh, I can be with the breath for 45 minutes with my mind never wandering. And I sit there and think, don't say that. That's not the right answer. You think it's the right answer. It's not the right answer. Our minds go everywhere. You sit down with what seems to be the simple task. Sit down, feel your breath. One breath, two breaths, gone. You know, we go to the past. We go to the recent past. We go to the long ago past, to some situation where we're filled with regret over not having behaved the way we now think we should have, where we, some situation where maybe we were silent when it would have been really the courageous thing to do to speak, or some situation where we blurted something out and it would have been much smarter to just be quiet, where we didn't act in a way that was really helpful, we acted in a way that was hurtful, and it hurts us now. Or the mind leaps into the future, some dazzling creation, the next book, <gasps> or some unpleasant state that has not happened and may never happen. It's like that uh, fantastic quotation from Mark Twain who says something like, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> you know? I mean, enough bad things do happen, but look at that tendency of the mind to create an entire universe. Sometimes we feel a few breaths and the mind goes off into this amazing chain of association where one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. We hear a sound. We draw a conclusion. Then we judge that. Then we have an interpretation. It's very hard to actually know what we're feeling, to know what we're experiencing, because very quickly this whole chain of association comes up. Our self-image, all that we will ever be, the whole universe. The word for this in the Pali language is papancha, which is a word I've always liked because I think it sounds like what it means. It means proliferation. Or as one translator I heard once uh, using it, he translated it as the imperialistic tendency of mind. You know, something happens, and before we know it, the entire world has been taken over. My favorite story about this has to do with this time when uh, Joseph Goldstein and I were teaching somewhere, and we were sitting in the kitchen, just having a cup of tea, and somebody who'd been sitting came in in some distress and, and said to Joseph, I just had this really horrible experience. So Joseph naturally said to him, well, what happened? What did you experience? And the man said, well, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am, and I always have been, and I always will be. And Joseph said to him, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yeah, and I'm so incredibly uptight, and I've never been able to get close to people, and it's always been this way, and it's never going to change. And Joseph said to him, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And, and he went on in some enormous elaboration of some story, and it was very interesting for me, kind of going back and forth and back and forth. And Finally, Joseph says something to him like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's painful enough to have tension in your jaw, but on top of that gets created this entire superstructure so that in meditation practice we actually say, look for the add-ons. You know, our experience can be very painful sometimes. 
and it's painful enough without adding on to it a kind of suffering we actually don't need to be experiencing. So what happens? We sit down with the seemingly simple task of feeling one breath at a time, and we're gone. It's going to be that way. Sometimes people think, well, if they only clutch tighter to the object of meditation, that their minds won't wander. Well, unfortunately, they wander even more. Another uh, great one-liner from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who sent me off to India with the pretense of accident, was, good luck. (laughs) Many times somebody would say something to him, and he would say, good luck. So if we think we can hold on even tighter to the breath and somehow clamp down our consciousness and not have our attention wander, it's not going to be like that. So what happens when we wake up and we're far, far away? Sometimes I say one of my favorite fantasies sitting in front of a room full of people is to imagine what would it be like if somebody invented a machine that would amplify people's thoughts? (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? Just one person would have to be plugged in per sitting for everyone to be really, really entertained. You know? It would be incredible, you know? It's like, I mean, I didn't lead this sitting, but I lead certainly many sittings. And, and it's funny, you know, opening your eyes when you're sitting up front and you look out and everyone looks so peaceful, so serene. You think, not a thought in that head, you know? But the truth, of course, is that everybody's minds are, are constantly moving and changing that way. So what happens? We recognize we've been distracted. Can we, in that moment, practice forgiving ourselves? Can we practice compassion for ourselves? Can we practice a really wholehearted letting go? And can we honor the phenomenal power, the the renewing power of being able to begin again? It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. Every time we realize our attention has wandered and we are gentle about it and we can let go and begin again, that is like the essence of the meditation. That's why 30 years later, it's the same instruction. Because a huge universe can happen within that one small arena. That's our practice. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it's not so easy to do. Because what happens as we do something like that is that everything is revealed to us. Sometimes I liken meditation practice to being like going into an old attic room and turning on the light. It's like the light of awareness. And what we see is everything. We see everything that a human being can want and know and fear and feel. Everything is revealed. We see these, these beautiful treasures. They are so phenomenally beautiful. We can barely believe that such a thing can exist in our very own attic. And, and we see these dusty corners and we think, ooh, I better clean that up. That's not so great. And we see these maybe very um, kind of unpleasant looking objects and we think, oh, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing there? We see everything. And that is the whole point because meditation practice is not that different than life. It's all the same feelings. It's all the same desires. It's all the same fears. It's all the same graspings. But the objects tend to be different depending on whether you're sitting at home or you're in intensive retreat. When I went up to Barry on November 1st, I had a meeting with all of the people who were just starting to sit that day. And I said, you know, there are 60 people who've been here since September 20th. And the people who've asked their teachers to be told the news, their teachers said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll keep you informed of what's going on in the world. But I said, the rest of the people have asked not to know. That's their choice. You know, they've chosen to, to step away from it for this period of time. So please, if you're going to ask a question in the hall, don't use the word anthrax. <laughs> I said, 
You can ask anything. Say you're filled with fear. Say you don't know what to do with your fear. But don't say, well, you know, I'm afraid to open my mail because, you know, nowadays when you open your mail, you know, it's really... Because everyone knows what it's like to be filled with fear. Whether you're in intensive retreat or you're in a particularly challenging situation in the world or if it's just a habit of mind. Everybody knows what it's like to be filled with fear. The particulars aren't that crucial to know. What is revealed in the course of meditation practice is everything. And the tool, the tools really that we are given, don't have so much to do with what is happening. They have to do with learning how to relate to what is happening. So that the goal is not to enter in the end a state of blankness where everything is kind of gray and neutral and nothing bothers you anymore and you barely notice where you are. The goal is to be able to have a radically different relationship to your experience, inner and outer. And a relationship based on awareness, based on compassion, based on clear seeing, based on insight. (coughs) Rather than one based on grasping, fear, anger, delusion. Because everything can arise in our experience in meditation just as it does in life, we have a great tableau with which to work. Take the experience of fear, for example. When a state of fear arises in meditation, our concern is not so much why we're afraid and if it's right or if it's wrong, but first it's understanding the nature of fear through looking at it. Not what we've been taught about it, not what we imagine it to be, not what we we are habituated to, but really, what is it? It's quite amazing to to come to that kind of intimate acquaintance with our own experience. It means we have to cut through lots of layers of concepts and be willing to open to the experience, not for the sake of succumbing to it, but for the sake of this much greater understanding. What is it? They say in the Buddhist psychology, in the Abhidhamma, that fear and anger are exactly the same mind state. They're just in different forms. They share many characteristics. Closing down. Shutting off. Trying to push away what is. Trying to separate. Feeling often uh, a lot of self-blame. Because we haven't been able to prevent something from happening. We can't make the pain not come, for example. And then we look to see, well, what is the relationship to it? What's the relationship to this fear? How many add-ons are there? You know, I'm such a fearful person. I always have been and I always will be. It's never going to change. Or, oh, this is fear. The two very different things. I was once in India uh, with this teacher. And in the course of just sitting with him, I had this very beautiful experience. You know, one of those experiences where you just feel kind of connected to everyone else in the room and really feel that you're a part of a greater whole. So I went up to him at the end of the, the morning and I described my experience to him. He looked at me and he said, well, now you'll never feel fear again. And I thought, yeah, right. Now I'll never feel fear again. And sure enough, probably 15 minutes later, I was out in the streets of India and it was extreme chaos and all kinds of things were going on and I was filled with fear. And I looked back at his comment and I said, well, thanks, you know. <laughs> like, 15 minutes of freedom, isn't that great? But what was also true was that I wasn't 
relating to the fear that I was feeling in the way I would habitually have related to it, which is, I'm such a bad person for feeling this. This is never going to change. This is all I'm ever capable of. You know, I must never tell anyone how afraid I am. There were a tremendous number of add-ons that were my habit. And probably because I was so fresh from this lovely experience of opening, I wasn't doing all of that. The fear was there, but in some way it was a more kind of naked awareness of it. And it was very, very different. It felt as though that fear, which is such an intense and uh, demanding state, was arising in a much bigger space than normal because the space is usually taken up by all of those thoughts and all of that judgment. And because it had more space to move in, it could actually move through in a different way. So even though it was fear and even though it was intense and even though it was awfully soon (laughs) after I'd left the room, it was a very different experience. So I thought back to his comment and I thought, you know, there is a way for it to be different and this is the way. Not to hope that it will never come and not to judge oneself when it does, but to relate to it in a vastly different manner. A good deal of that has to do with the creation of space. Awareness and compassion and loving kindness all create space, which isn't a cold and distant space, but really it's that kind of, of relaxation and opening so we can experience everything without fighting it and without getting lost in that cascade of, of papancha that we normally get lost in. <coughs> There's certain practices in the Tibetan tradition where they encourage you to think about the time in your life, say when you were the most jealous or the most angry or the most afraid and fill your mind with those memories until you really feel that emotion strongly again because there's a purpose to that (laughs) practice (laughs) because at that moment what they're encouraging you to do is to practice being mindful of those emotions to be present with them not to be judging them Uh, to be clear about their changing nature, all of those elements that are part of what mindfulness is. That practice does two things. One is it increases faith because you realize, wow, look at that. Mindfulness can go everywhere. I don't have to have just a sweet, placid mind state in order to be very mindful. I can be mindful in the midst of this rip-roaring storm of emotion. I can be mindful in the midst of this really terrible feeling. Mindfulness can go anywhere. There are no barriers. There's no, there's no preference. So it's faith. And then there's fearlessness because you realize you have a tool for working with anything that comes up. So you don't have to, you don't have to recoil when those things start to happen. So I used to, I've never done that practice um, in that tradition. I used to read about it a lot, and every time I read about it, I think, why do that, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's like, all those things come up anyway, (laughs) you know? Why would you have to sit and fill your whole being with some, some terrible turmoil? It all happens anyway. Sometimes things are quiet and serene. Sometimes they are extremely agitated. Everything changes all of the time, all of these conditions. And we sit down, we feel the breath, we recognize what's going on. We see if we can gently let go, and we come back. In that way, we experience the whole range of what's happening. We see how changeable everything is. You know, in the beginning of the sitting, let me put it another way. I used to have this habit at the end of a sitting to look back and say, well, was that a good one or a bad one? <laughs> You know, which in itself is a ludicrous question because on what basis am I deciding it was good or bad? 
But really, even what was even more stupid was to think it was just one thing. Because in the course of that, say, 45 minutes, there were moments of sleepiness, and there were moments of clarity, and there were moments of fear, and there were moments of anger, and there were moments of joy, and there were moments of love. Constantly changing. It wasn't just one thing. But we have that tendency, looking back or looking ahead, to kind of clump everything together, to solidify, to create a, a seeming solidity where there is none, where there's actually constant change. The more we can attune to the infinitely, constantly changing nature of things, the freer we are to let go, to begin again, to see a sense of possibility, to not reify, to not identify. And the more we look at our experience, the more we see it's ungovernable. You know, you can walk into this room to meditate and say, well... You know, I've decided I'm never going to fall asleep meditating again. As Trungpa Rinpoche would say, good luck. <laughs> you know, when conditions come together for a certain effect to arise, it will arise. It doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be passive and, and just kind of um, complacent. You know, we can take off the third sweater or we can, you know... Um, do whatever we need to do to try to create the conditions for more wakefulness. That's a wonderful thing to do. But to have the idea that somehow we will be absolutely, completely in control so that we can say, well, never again. It's not going to happen. It doesn't make any sense. But don't we live like that in a certain way? I sometimes tell the story about this time I was teaching in California in uh, January, where it was, it was northern California, and it was pouring, pouring, pouring rain. We were teaching at this facility where we hadn't taught before, and actually haven't taught since, <laughs> which was very rustic. And uh, when we teach intensive retreats, the uh, format is to alternate sitting meditation with walking meditation. And in this particular place, there was very little indoor walking space so people were doing their walking meditation outside in the rain and I used to sit and and look at them and feel really bad and I think oh no you know they're getting all wet and this is so terrible sitting after sitting that I'd be leading I, I would think I really should apologize to them you know and just really say how sorry I am that it's raining and you know I feel so bad about it and I should apologize to them and then one sitting I had a revelation I thought wait a minute you know, I'm not even from California. <laughs> this isn't my weather. This is their weather. You know, they should apologize to me because after all, you know, it's like I'm getting wet too, you know. It's like why don't they apologize to me? I told that story soon after about to illustrate, you know, how we can assume we're in control of the universe and that everything that goes wrong is our fault. I told that story in California, and then I came back to Barry in February to teach um, these two retreats, which I teach every year, and I told that story again. And then at the end of the first retreat, the loving-kindness retreat, this terrible ice storm came up, and I had to get up in front of 100 people and say, well, you know, I'm ending the retreat early because I want to be sure you can drive home safely. And all these people called out to me. They said, Sharon, you should have done better. This is your weather. You are from (laughs) Massachusetts, you know. But somehow, that's how we are. It seems so silly. But we think we should be in control. And hence, our great dismay, time after time, of seeing, wow, didn't go my way. In the Buddhist tradition, they talk about this gyration between hope and fear and hope and fear. And hope, not in the sense of... um, faith or, or affirmation, which is a very good thing. You know, having hope, realizing change, that there's always the possibility, having a sense of, an immense sense of possibility and being able to step forth into the unknown, that's all good. But the way the word hope is used specifically, mostly in, in Buddhist traditions, has to do with a kind of narrowness of fixation, like things have got to work out in this one particular way, and that's the only way I'm going to be happy. So it's a great sense of limitation. It's really kind of grasping, 
uh, when they use the word hope. And the opposite side of the coin inevitably is fear. You know, we want to control something, we fear it's not going to really happen. But we don't like the fear, so we try to control even more. And then, you know, that doesn't work, and so then we feel even more fear, and then we don't like that, and then, you know. So it's this constant dance back and forth. When we meditate, we see we're not in control much, really. You know, neither externally nor internally. One year I was teaching in New York City, um, a few years ago, and I was teaching this very beautiful Tibetan center, which um, you couldn't get to from entering the front of the building. You had to walk all the way around the side of the building, down this alley, and go in the back of the building to get to the series of rooms that was the Tibetan center. And so this was the first night that I was teaching there, and uh, gave a talk, and... Very often the first instruction that we give, which is a prelude to sit down and feel your breath, is sit down and listen to sound. Because with sound, you can get into a felt sense of what it's like to simply experience something. Not trying to change it, not feeling responsible for it, to prolong it, to stop it. You can get into that feeling of a relaxed, open awareness that's very full and complete. So, and then in a few minutes, we try to take that same spirit of awareness to feeling the breath. So I, I gave a talk and then gave the instruction, which is, let's sit down and listen to sound. And that moment, somebody came into the alley, some guy came into the alley and started screaming obscenities, like that moment. <laughs> and he'd call out somebody's name in this whole long list of obscenities, and then someone else's name in this whole long list of obscenities, and... I was sitting there thinking, you know, well, how many people does he know? You know, it's like, <laughs> it was just going on and on. Of course, everyone was absolutely hysterical. Um, and then he stopped, and then we moved on to the breath. <laughs> and then at the end of the sitting, I said, you know, it's really funny because I give that instruction in Barry, and you hear this little bird chirping sounds, you know, and you hear the wind moving through the trees, you know, you give this instruction in an alley in New York City, you don't know what's going to happen. Actually, you don't know what's going to happen in Barry either. Because if the startling change doesn't happen externally, it's going to happen internally. When conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. It's not our fault. I once went to one of my early teachers, this man named Manindra, in a state of, and there I was, you know, new acquaintance with my mind, and, uh, a state of extreme distress over something unpleasant I'd seen in my mind. And um, He looked at me and he said, why are you so upset about that thought that's come up in your mind? Did you invite it? You know, did you say, like at 8.30, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please, you know, or filled with fear? No. <laughs> Conditions came together in a certain way for this object to arise. It doesn't mean we don't care, and it doesn't mean we don't do anything about it. But that feeling like we should have been able to command the body, the mind, the outside world, it's just folly. If we can let go of that, then we can actually be intelligent about seeing what we can do to affect change, to make for change, which begins with being honest and open to what actually is, to our experience as it is. Being able to see clearly with, with a degree of compassion rather than judgment. And then we can move on from there. That's why that one little instruction, you know, sit down and feel your breath, given everything else that happens when we do that, is really, it's an extremely profound practice. So do you have any questions or anything you'd like to talk about?
I am going to sit down and actually have a meditation where I'm not bombarded. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm hearing you saying, it really is wonderful, that it's, it may never happen. Mm -hmm. And you've been meditating for 30 years, and I gather it's still happening to you. And it is, it's kind of like wanting to perfect meditation. This is the one I'm going to clear my mind of the thought. And the other thing is I do, and I, I guess that's the part I still need to work on, is I think at times I get lost in the thoughts. And at times I'm not sure I want to let go of them. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, but this is a really good one. I think mm -hmm. I want to stay with this one. So that's helpful. And I, am I hearing mm -hmm. correctly? Um, the question was about... Um, uh, I'll just paraphrase what you said, you know, um, having an image with the perfect meditation, which has to do with having a clear mind and not being bombarded by thoughts. And all these many years later, she's still bombarded by thoughts. And, um, and sometimes with the thoughts, uh, there's a temptation to just go off in them and not, not actually let go and come back. I'd say it's always changing. You know, it's not to say, um, I don't want to imply that that fine day won't arrive, <laughs> you know, when you you have a sitting that is incredibly peaceful where there are no thoughts. It certainly may come. Um, mostly, we would say that those experiences happen through the development of a force of concentration. You know, the more we can let go of the thoughts and gather our energy, the more concentrated we become. And that's, that's a long road, you know, but it's definitely a power of mind that gets developed. Um, but concentration, as compared to mindfulness, concentration is the gathering of our energy and the stabilizing of our attention, like one-pointedness of attention. Mindfulness is an ability to be aware of what's happening without adding on to that experience, grasping, aversion, or delusion. Concentration as a, and we do both, you know, we really practice both, but concentration as a factor of mind tends to be more fragile. You know, it's easier to concentrate in a quiet place than in a noisy place. You may actually sit here one day, and that beautiful sitting may happen, you know, where there's no, there are no thoughts hardly at all, and then somebody sneezes, you know, and it's gone. You know, and you're frantic, like, how close are they to me? You know, what disease do they have? You know, did I take enough vitamin C today? What about zinc? Maybe I'll go to Brendan's Circus, I'll get some zinc. You know? <laughs> You know, like, why do they come when they're sick? You know, they shouldn't have come. Maybe it's allergies. Maybe I shouldn't be so judgmental. You know? Um, it's gone. And so, while concentration is wonderful and beautiful, it's very subject to the environment. And we would say that same scenario might play out, but if you're basing your practice more on mindfulness, then you hear the sound of the, you're mindful of that beautiful, quiet state. You hear the sound of the sneeze, you're mindful of the sound. You get really angry, you're mindful of the anger. You know, you get really judgmental, you're mindful of the judgment. You know, and then you come back to the breath. It's like you can be aware of that whole chain of events without feeling, oh, well, this is awful, my meditation's been ruined. You know, because what you're doing is, is applying mindfulness to all the whole range of experience. And that's why mindfulness is considered to be the basis of freedom. Because it can go anywhere. You know, you don't have to hide in a closet in your room uh, to never hear a sound. You know, you can, you can have a very open experience. So. Mm -hmm. um, the... For me, space has also been a very defining quality for um, seeing how mind has changed in the not very long time I've been practicing, mm -hmm. um, particularly in being uh, how I deal with other people, allowing them and myself an awful lot of space. Um, it's really quite marvelous. Um, what I find when I take that same feeling or, you know, the, that beauty of spaciousness as a mental trait and uh, apply it to the physical me, mm -hmm. and I don't like the spaciousness of the physical me. Mm -hmm. um, there is a feeling of complete lack of spaciousness to the internal, you know, dealing with the, not simply dealing with body image type of thing, but something of that too. Mm -hmm. But the... Um, 
the feelings of contractedness, of tightness, seem to be much more difficult to deal with in a physical way. Mm -hmm. Is there something <laughs> um, other than like you know, an aerobics class that you know is a separate sort of thing or something along that nature um, that you could recommend, or what sort of um, mm -hmm. advice would you have for trying to get some of that spaciousness to the physicality? Of, mm -hmm. You know. Okay, the, I'll just repeat the question for the people downstairs. <laughs> um, the question was about uh, the experience of spaciousness and uh, having an easier time with the sense of spaciousness toward himself and other people uh, as compared to um, his experience of his body. And uh, the physicality of it is much more difficult to have spaciousness around. Um, It's interesting because I think the um, the experience of spaciousness is a mental experience or an emotional experience. You know, um, it's not a physical experience, and so the problem with the image is that it can imply a certain kind of sensation, and what it really means—it's like that guy with the tension in his jaw. You know, the tension might not have gone away in an extremely spacious experience. Um, but the mental clenching around it, the, the closing down around it, and the proliferation, you know, this means this about myself forevermore, that's what goes away. Um, so the, the spaciousness would be around sometimes some very unpleasant feelings. You know, or, well, the word feelings in this sense means sensations or experience, you know, of the body. Um, rather than, you know, it kind of reminds me of the, your question reminds me of when um, people say, my breath is really constricted. You know, and I've got to do all these exercises to open up my breath, which are fine. You know, I mean, it's a great, great thing to do, but it actually isn't this particular practice. You know, you can be very mindful in an open-hearted way of a very constricted breath, and and that would be sort of more in the nature of this practice, which in itself tends to open up the breath, but it's not purposed toward that. You know, which then becomes a project. And then there's pass-fail, you know? <laughs> and then there's, you know, it's not opening enough, and it was more open yesterday, and, you know, everyone else is open, and I'm not, you know? Um, so I must see this practice as, um, it's almost like a global learning rather than a specific release of something. And we can then take the learning into everything, and what happens then is often very interesting, you know, because it also comes, uh, becomes a question of sometimes revolutionizing our understanding of what makes for change. If I'm hearing you right, it's relating back to what you were saying about uh, look at the atoms. Yeah, look at Real, the atoms. Just realize yeah, it's yeah, yeah. sensation. Right? Yeah, yeah, Ignore yeah. The yeah, yeah, look at the add-ons, you know, because um, I think mostly it's difficult to understand what makes for change. You know, we often think, well, if I have this fear or I have this sort of um, tight breath or I have this immense amount of stress in my head, you know, something like that, if I fight it, you know, it's really going to change. And there's a certain engagement about that that's exciting, you know, but often the battle mentality doesn't really make for change. And it's a big leap of faith to say, well, what happens, what kind of change might happen from relating to this same old experience in a different way rather than fighting it? And that different way has a lot to do with that kind of openness. So it's really, it's like a major adventure. Um, and I think it's got all the qualities of an adventure. It's a little scary, you know. 
it's bizarre <laughs> sometimes, you know, it's, it's really different. And so I, I try to, um, these days when I'm teaching, you know, I hear, like just up in Barry, I hear myself talking about an adventure a lot. You know, there's so many things we imagine if we were going to go off and have an adventure, you know, some exotic land or climb a mountain or something like that, something we've never done before, you know, well, here it is, <laughs> you know. Let's, let's try to be mindful of this kind of experience as well as that kind of experience. And it's a big thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so preface, I was just noticing um, the challenge of listening carefully to what you were just saying while I was formulating my question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a question which is um, a pressing one for me. Um, you, you talked about um, kind of good hope and bad hope. <laughs> uh, and in your talk, which I which is very clear and helpful. Um, I think there are sort of elements of an answer, but I'd, I'd like you to spin out more about what the good hope is like. Uh, and in particular, uh, you talked about ungovernability, un, you know, and, and how sort of bad hope quoted a lot about trying to control the world, and I, I can really relate to that. Um, but there's also the part of me that that uh, aspires to live in that space of possibility that you're describing, and to make plans, and to undertake things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd love for you to talk about mm-hmm. kind of that space. That's good. Okay, the question was about, um, this is a chapter from my forthcoming book, oh. called <laughs> Faith and Fear. And it's a lot about that particular thing. Uh, the question was about different kinds of hope that I was referring to. Well, which we'll call good hope and bad hope in shorthand, <laughs> although I'm sure there's a more elegant way of doing it, which I can't come up with right now. So, um, I guess one way of making the distinction um, is to understand that uh, bad hope, you know, can also be called fixated hope. There's a quality of fixation, uh, which m- really means it's a very subtle form of fear. You know, it's that demand that things be a certain way, and and the, the uh, better use of hope, which I would call faith, um, has to do with being able to move into the unknown. You know, we all make plans and hope and arrange and try and, you know, uh, try to make a difference. But we can do it with wisdom, which is recognizing that we're not ultimately going to be in control of the unfolding of events. You know, and that we do the best we can and that we keep moving forward and that we're not afraid to move forward. Um, even given that it's into the into the unknown, um, and the example I, I write about has to do with it's funny because when I, I talked about Danny giving his talk at uh, the yoga conference, I said one of the reasons that I went to Bogaya to that retreat was because I'd heard Ramdas was going to be there. You know, so Ramdas has been a friend of mine since those days, and um, I wrote I based this chapter on him. And the year, um, what year is it, when we had the stroke? I forget. But anyway, you know, some years ago in February, Ramdas had a massive stroke. And I knew it was February because I was teaching in Barry. And uh, somebody called and said that um, he'd had this stroke and it wasn't clear if he was going to live or not. It was, it was really a very bad stroke. And I had known him, you know, all through these years. We'd had a continuing acquaintance and... Um, he was in many ways somewhat responsible for the establishment of IMS as a center because we, we say is a joke but it's true he gave Joseph his first teaching job uh, in 1974 and um, we practiced together uh, all over the world you know in India and Australia and you know Burma and all these different places through lots of teachers and lots of traditions and uh, we'd all been very close and then here he was stricken and um, so one of his friends, close friends who'd been sitting that retreat, came out of retreat. She was staying in my house, and we basically had a kind of vigil that night. And a lot of it, certainly in the beginning, was around this force of fixated hope. You know, one of us, it was all like we would just make these incredible projections into the future. Like one of us would say, um, you know, maybe he'll walk again but not talk. You know, maybe he'll talk again but not walk. 
I just told him this story, actually. <laughs> and, you know, or maybe, you know, maybe this will happen, but not that. And each was kind of an effort, almost like it seemed like we felt almost if we could say it enough, it would happen. We just wanted some handle on being able to carve out the future. And so we would just go through this whole litany of, of events. And then um, finally, uh, this woman who was, who was in my house said, you know, here and now we're entering a mystery. This is really a time for faith. And when she said it, I realized that Ramdas's experience was actually that he was going into the unknown. Mm-hmm. And that if I couldn't admit that, that I couldn't go there with him. You know, that I actually was abandoning <coughs> him in some way, <coughs> you know, by, by trying to say, well, this is going to happen or that's going to happen, you know. And, um, and that the only way to actually fully accompany him into that experience, you know, in a heartful way, was to admit that I didn't know. And to have my commitment be other than having him be perfect again. You know, and so that, that really uh, taught me a lot and became, in a way, kind of a model for me of the difference between those two kinds of hope. You know, and I mean, certainly I wanted him to walk and talk and, and be brilliant and funny and eloquent all over again, but... Um, and especially uh, seeing him through his time of recovery, uh, I've seen that those expectations and demands don't help. You know, that what really helps is, is my open-hearted presence in being there. And I've been there many times when either I or somebody would say, well, you know, you'll be walking again. And, and he'll say, maybe not. You know, he says, that life's over now. This is a new life. You know, maybe I'll walk again, maybe I won't. You know, so it's a funny thing. It's another kind of challenge, you know, because it would seem like the best kind of gift would be, you know, let's make that happen. You know, but um, it's different than that. advice you had gotten when you were in, uh, was it Rochester? Where, Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> About uh, where should you go in India, uh-huh. and the response you got was to allow the pretense of accident to be the, your guide. And I was wondering if you could just say a bit more about that. I think it relates to what you've just been talking about, a bit because it has to do with the kind of <coughs> of expectation, but allowing accident, which may be something other than accident, to mm-hmm. take over. And mm-hmm. what your relationship to that is in terms of faith. Mm-hmm. The question was about what I said before about the pretense of accident. And I think, yes, you know, that is um, a, a crucial component of faith. Because isn't it amazing? You know, it's like um, when we first opened the center uh, in Barry, which was, you know, almost 26 years ago now. Um, within the first month, we received two letters which were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first was, instead of the Insight Meditation Society, which is the actual name, the first was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) Um, And the second was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) And for a very long time, I I really, really liked the Instant Meditation Society the best. I used to look at the envelope and think, what were they thinking? You know, like... And how typical of our culture, you know, it's got to happen instantly. But later on, and nowadays, I actually like the Hindsight Meditation Society best because isn't it true? It's like we look back, and it's in the looking back, we think, how did that happen? You know, like, isn't that amazing that this and this and this came together in that way? You know, we can't know always going forward. But when we look back, there is a certain kind of perspective that comes. Um, and I think that the track that the pretense of accident moves on is the sincerity of our intention. Mm-hmm. You know, when we have the kind of sincere intention and hold to it, then that's what's propelling us forward, and then all kinds of different things will happen. Um, some anticipated and some we could never anticipate. 
you know, and we just adjust. Hold on to at that point to find that though, a limiting hope or an open hope. What is that? <laughs> I mean, that's something I've been thinking about. Uh huh. To find what? Well, if you're looking to have something come to you, and you're really just almost disappointed if it doesn't, mm -hmm. is that part of that kind of limited hope, or are you waiting? Mm -hmm. um, the question was if. Uh, you're looking for something to come to you and it doesn't and then you're disappointed is that the kind of limiting hope or or if you're waiting um, first of all I mean maybe we'll get rid of the bad and good you know term now um, you know uh, it's not bad to have even fixated hope but you're going to suffer you know uh, you know it's not that these states are bad and wrong and contemptible and you have to condemn yourself for it. But let's look honestly at the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. You know, of course we want things to happen and we're disappointed when they don't happen. But how disappointed? You know, um, of course we, you know, are holding out for something better and we're waiting. But how much are we waiting? <laughs> you know, how much is, is on pause? How much are we not living while we're waiting? You know, so those are all self-assessments that we can make. And they're all based on, if you go back to the um, very famous statement of the Buddhas where he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. You know, we don't explore these minds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.